Welcome to another episode in the continuing saga that we call the Rex Scott story. Hey, it's not the Rex Scott story. <laughs> it's from under the rubble. Is all it? right, all right. Well, and this week, we're going back to those 10 questions. Remember that? No, I don't. Okay. Did, we, me, did, did I answer some of them last you've time? You've answered so far six amazing, mm. very intelligent questions. Well, what do I win? Well, you win the chance to answer more. And here we go. <laughs> I'd like to say hello to everybody out there, and I uh, hope you're enjoying these 10 questions. And again, uh, if you want to um, get on the website and add your questions to the doctor, we encourage you to do that. We're going to dive right in, and uh, here we go. Doctor, what event in history was the most detrimental? A movement, a time, a person that caused the greatest harm? And I don't think Hitler uh, qualifies in this one. I'd like to see something else. Some was unless that really was the the, the most detrimental historical moment. What no, do you, what do you think? It was a it was a it was a mere blip on, oh, really? uh, on the radar. Okay. Let's um let's define terms a little bit. Let's okay. say um for the modern world as we live in it, the world of the past 500 years, the world of the past 1000 years, 2000 years. Let's, you want to start with the with the most remote, or let's start with the most recent. Yes, probably the most recent terrifying event, which is also the culmination of a movement, is the French Revolution. Hmm. In the French Revolution, all of the worst ideas that uh, developed during the Renaissance and the so-called Enlightenment, the uh, hostility to Christianity, hmm. contempt for all things European and Western, contempt for all tradition, uh, moral, social, aesthetic, every, everything, uh, contempt for any knowledge that did not come from sort of the, the sciences that were emerging there. All of these things uh, e developed and emerged in the, in the middle of the 18th century and exploded in the revolution to overthrow the French monarchy. Now, the French monarchy was nothing so much to get too excited about. Louis XVI was an extremely nice man. From everything one can gather, he's probably the nicest person since uh, the king known as St. Louis hmm. uh, to have sat upon the French throne. The people who overthrew him, it, be it began as a revolution of the upper class because they wanted they wanted to share power with the monarchy. They were completely incompetent to discharge that kind of hmm. responsibility. Then they were joined by the lawyers, and uh, who are always troublemakers, lawyers, intellectuals, small-town atheists. And, you know, it, it, would, it was sort of as if the people who run Hollywood were, would end up running a country. Uh, there was mass murder. Uh, not just of the aristocrats, the priests, or the nuns, by the way, massive sexual violence as well, uh, mass murder, deliberate destruction of all French traditions and institutions. The going back, monuments of French kings that were a thousand years old had to be defaced. 
The revolution was to wipe out human memory of human civilization. And what year is this, I'm sorry? 1789. Okay, and how long? I'm sorry, 1787, excuse me. 1787, and how long did it last? Well, it never ended because we're all all prisoners of the French Revolution. On one level, it ended with with Napoleon's coup d'etat in which he, on the one hand, institutionalized the principles of the French Revolution, but he gave stability and order Hmm. because there had been no law and order, just whichever faction was in charge would spend its time murdering members of the other faction. And so this this division between right and left began in the French Revolution. Because if you sat on the right, it meant that you were sort of defending the status quo as of today mm-hmm. in the French National Assembly. If you sat on the left, you were saying, no, we, the revolution's got to go farther and farther and farther. And so as a result, the people who one day were the revo- the, the radicals, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a few months later, they're the ones getting their heads chopped off because they're now the conservatives. Everything possible was done to destroy the, uh, the civilization of Catholic France. And the, the principles of the revolution, which, of course, had the principles were already widespread throughout Europe, but now, the, now they had guns. Now they had bayonets. Now they had a very successful army. They had the first, uh, they called it the levé en masse. They, they had the first national conscription. So they could create this, this huge national army and defeat professional armies. The French are, they are the most energetic and intelligent and creative nation in the past 500 years of, of the world. And they used that energy and creativity and courage, which they always had in massive amounts, they used it to destroy everything. We are all, to a large extent, heirs of that. When you heard people like Ronald Reagan or John McCain talking about, we need to fight to spread democracy around the world, Mm -hmm. that's straight out of the French Revolution. It's a pernicious evil thought. You can't leave people to hell alone just to lead their own lives. When Hillary Clinton says Muslim women have to be liberated from wearing the, the hijab and all of that stuff. It's none of our business. Mm. But in the French Revolution, everybody's business became our business. In America, because uh, some of the early leaders of the French Revolution, like the Marquis de Lafayette, had been over here fighting with us. Of course, we conveniently forgot that the French government bankrolled our revolution and sent a massive army and fleet at the surrender at Yorktown. Mm. Remember, there were not only was the French fleet bottling up the English, but there were more French boots on the ground than there were American boots on the ground. And when when a few years ago during the uh, Gulf War, the French said, we don't see why we should go to war in Iraq. And all of the American neoconservative warmongers started screaming about French surrender monkeys. Hmm. which a term I think was Bart Simpson's, as if the French hadn't delivered us independence on a platter. Hmm. Initially, there were a lot of people in America like Tom Paine. Tom Paine went over and was one of the moderates in the French Revolution (laughs) and got himself in a lot of trouble. What's the what's behind all this? I mean, is this about money? Is this about power? Is this about changing the world for the better? It's uh, about cha- it's certainly about changing the world. Look, for a thousand years there had been a Christian civilization. That is roughly from the time of uh, Constantine and Theodosius when they'd Christianized the Roman Empire. Rome fell. 
but Christianity remained as the organizing principle of our ethics, our literature, our way, our thinking. Hmm. When the Renaissance came along, it didn't start out as a rebellion against that, but it ended up as a rebellion. And so one after another, you have these Renaissance thinkers in, in Italy, in France, and England especially, uh, not just rebelling against the Catholic Church, but re rebelling against Christianity itself. This is when pornography starts to be written on a mass, massive basis, and even famous writers are, are like Michel de Montaigne. He's writing about his self-abuse, and he's writing about things that you, you just don't talk about mm -hmm. in, in those days. The, and the, the whole point was to eliminate Christian morality, things like prohibitions on divorce, uh, restrictions on prostitution, fornication, homosexuality, all of these things, they were allowed to go on, but they weren't allowed to take center stage. And you couldn't be, you couldn't be a respectable person if you were a known fornicator, adulterer, homosexual, etc. That's just one of many aspects. I mean, this is, this would be worth, you know, a 20 hour series. There's, right. But there is no more fundamental movement than the French Revolution, because the anti-Christian intellectual and social revolution, which had been going on by then for several hundred years, now takes on an institutional form and a violent form. I mean, they have, the mass murder becomes, uh, becomes an ordinary instrument of government. Government now speaking in the name of the people is divorced from all responsibility to maintain law, custom, tradition, and order, because if the people want it, they should get it. What's H.L. Mencken's famous line about democracy? Democracy is the principle. The people get what they want, and they get it good and hard. Hmm. Well, if you want to see a people getting it good and hard, all you have to do is study this period. And of course, all the left in Europe and America and Britain and the United States have always glorified it as a great event with a few bad things. Hmm. You know, oh, well, there were excesses. You know, so Dickens' famous beginning of A Tale of Two Cities, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Well, which was it, Charles? Make up your mind. <laughs> it was the worst of times. Hmm. Was this a concerted effort to crush Christianity or the morality of Christianity? Yes, that was part. That was a major part of the of the impetus. They closed down the monasteries. They turned great churches in Paris into powder magazines. What they did to the nuns in this famous convent on the Rue Vaugirard, they were raped and murdered. They were cut into pieces. There were cannibalism. A famous a French literary critic, not a, not a conservative at all, Hippolyte Taine, Taine started to write a book on the French Revolution. He was basically in favor of it when he started the book. But as he went into the documents, he went crazy. I mean, he's, and so people now blame him. This is a tasteless book. He has no understanding of the important issues. All It's just one massacre, one atrocity after another. Listen, this is what happens if a morally sensitive, intelligent person begins to study what really happened in the French Revolution, then they will become as, as unhinged as Tain was. By the way, a book reprinted by Liberty Press, but very much worth reading. The French Revolution was untouchable by historians until roughly the 1970s, mm. when in France, some ex-communist historians like Francois Furet, he'd spent his life on the left, but he was a good documentary researcher. And he started rereading French intellectuals like Alexis de Tocqueville and others mm. and trying to grapple with why they so hated the revolution. 
Furet, having realized how evil communism was and how evil the Russian Revolution was, that Furet then started doing research into, well, gee, is the French Revolution the origin of the evil that's in the Russian Revolution? He realized 100%, yes. And in fact, Marxist communism grows out of the left, one of the left-wing movements of the revolution. Babeuf had planned an overthrow of the revolutionary government to be replaced by a kind of communist government. Mm -hmm. And they, they got a hold of him and his conspirators, and they were all executed. But a few of them got away, and they infiltrated other movements, which, including what would become Marxist communism, but also movement, the Risorgimento, all of these things, you could trace the how these cells develop. It's like you kill somebody with a disease, mm -hmm. but the virus spreads beyond. This would be a subject worth uh, many programs on the uh, French Revolution in Paris, for example. We had a program there, issues of magazines, uh, conferences here, summer schools. But there is no more fundamentally evil thing because that, that has happened because once the revolution happened, once France, for example, became an anti-Catholic country, an anti-Christian country, okay. which it is to this day. All right. It's full of Catholics, but they are not first-class citizens. This is why Muslims are in trouble in France, because you're not supposed to go into a public building wearing any religious symbol. That wasn't designed for Muslims. It was designed so that you couldn't go to get a marriage license and have a cross around your neck. I see. I visited abbeys and monasteries and, and convents in France, which were, they were turned into button factories and gunpowder factories. It seems like uh, because of the rise of Christianity and its strength and its morality yeah. and, and what it was doing, they almost had to come back with a terrible fury of darkness. Yeah. Yeah. And well, you talk about cannibalism yeah. and the terrible atrocities to women. It seems like they had to fight really hard and dirty to rise above it, against it. Um, total darkness against total yeah. light. The, uh, I'll give you one little example, and perhaps we should move on, but one, mm -hmm. one little example. On the eve of the French Revolution, they were holding conspiratorial meetings, and, and in the early days of the revolution, in the Palais Royal, which was owned by a cousin of the King of France. Mm -hmm. The Duke of Orléans was a, uh, was a Freemason, as were just about everybody involved in the French Revolution, including even the king's brothers, were uh, and probably the king himself for a while, hmm. were, were, were Freemasons. So they would go in, they would have a Masonic meeting, then they would have some crackpot po political schemer giving speeches Mm -hmm. on, uh, on kill all the priests. You know, you know Voltaire, one of, the, one of the progenitors of the revolution, said he looked forward to the day when the last priest died, was murdered along with the last king. But at the same time, as the evening wore on, they'd be drinking and they'd give up the politics, they'd bring in the girls, and they'd have a public sex orgy. Wow. Now, I don't say this to be, oh, oh, sex or because, you know, the kind of thing that goes on in Harvey Weinstein's office every day of the week. Well, until, it used to anyway. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, Harvey's just been replaced by people more discreet. The idea that how the culture of Hollywood is going to be changed by a bunch of daffy lying women, that is eagerly complicit in all of this. You know, they, they got their jobs this way. Anyway, but the point is, you know, we talk about sex, drugs and rock and roll. They had 
sex, Freemasonry, and revolution. And that's a far more powerful combination. I see. Wow, I never would have expected uh, Vive la Révolution to be uh, so devastating <laughs> to <laughs> our world. Um, let's, let's move it forward and see if uh, maybe that has anything to do with this next question. We live in a great age of technology and we live in a great age of convenience. It still seems, though, that, uh, and we've addressed this a couple of times, that we are in a world that is in moral decline. What is the greatest contributor to a world that's in decline. And hmm. what does technology have to do with that, if anything? Well, let's concentrate on, um, on the technology a- aspect of it because there are many reasons for the decline, one of which is the destruction of Christianity. Traditional Christianity exists as a personal faith today, whereas it, it used to be an institutional force for shaping society. Mm. And I'm not just talking about the Roman Catholic Church because this was very true in the Orthodox East, but it was very true where Calvinists ran a, a government, Calvinist Switzerland or, or Scotland. It was very true in Anglican England, which was sort of moderately Lutheran, very true in Lutheran Germany. So we're talking about a, a vision of Christianity, which is not just two or three people gathering together and saying, gee, I sort of like this guy, Jesus. All right. Okay. The, the Christianity was the or, was the way in which our moral and social lives were organized. That is not true. And to the extent that Christianity does organize our moral and social life, it's through various ecumenical organizations. I remember my former colleague Richard Newhouse used to refer to the the big giant Lutheran co-op as Luthco. You know, like like uh, Walmart, <laughs> like a major corporation. Yeah. So the Catholic Church in the United States is a left wing conspiracy against the United States and against religion. Speaking as a practicing Catholic, the I would say roughly eighty five percent of the bishops uh, sh- should be put in jail somewhere. Wow. That's, this is true, and it's true across the board. You look at evangelical Christianity, you have these clowns on television, you've got the Willow Creek movement, you've yeah. got nothing but con artists and degenerates. And so Christianity as a whole on the social fabric, the, the institutionalized Christianity has largely a negative effect. For example, some poor patriotic Catholic who loves his country is told from the pulpit that we cannot keep illegal immigrants out because that would be unchristian. We cannot defend our interests. We cannot stand up to, a, uh, to an international bully because we have to always yield. Mm. So there are, there are many factors, including the French Revolution that we were talking about. Right. Technology is, on the one hand, you could say it's neutral. You could take a hammer and build a house or beat your neighbor's brains out with okay, it. Okay, I understand that. However, uh, technologies uh, that make it easy for us to have the illusion of power. So, for example, Rex... You write songs, you sing songs, you, mm-hmm. you play instruments, even if they're these wretched electric guitars. <laughs> but the point is, this takes active participation. Most people involved in rock and roll, by involved in, I mean who like it, they, they press a button and music comes out of headphones or speakers and they, and they listen. And that is all they do. 
Mm. Very few people can play an instrument today. Very few people can catch a fish today unless they're hobbyists and they, they go off and buy expensive equipment. Very mm. few people could build a campfire in the woods. Very few people can cook their own meal. So they, you're taking technology and saying we're switching the real thing for the fake thing. I that's can, right. I can watch a guy catching a fish on the internet. Exactly. Why the heck would I have to go out and catch one myself? Besides, yes. it's, you're going to get wet. It's yeah. going to be cold out there. You're going to have to gut the thing. It's going to be gross. Yeah. So it's and we've a got kind of vir- virtual sex. Virtual. Virtual, ever, you know, and, and now, you know, this, I don't know how far it's going, but uh, sex robots are being, are being constructed and marketed. Right. And, they, and, and every time they do that, they get huge play in the media. What I'm saying is that in a wicked age, technology becomes wicked. We are lazy. We don't want to do anything for ourselves. We don't want to accept responsibility. In my next podcast with Stephen Heiner, we're going to talk about really a man who can't put on a jacket and tie when he goes to church is telling you what he thinks of his God. His God doesn't even deserve the kind of clothing you might have to wear every day at work because church is not as important as your workplace. So for all practical purposes, we've lost respect for God when that's... That is our moral degeneration. You know, we walk around and say, nobody's better than I am. Well, sure, I mean, there are a lot of people better than I am and in, in many different ways. Athletes are more athletic. Musicians have talent. They're painters. There are people who are good at business. They're, they're the great deal makers like President Trump. We don't want to ever admit it. We want to just sit there and say, I could do what that guy does. I just never got a break in life. But so, therefore, we cannot dress for an occasion. We refuse to grow up, and we are totally dependent on government institutions or quasi-governmental institutions. They raise our children for us. They uh, government-regulated media industries. They, they tell us what to think. They tell us what has happened. They entertain us. I would wonder what would happen if you took the average 25-year-old college-degreed Silicon Valley executive and stuck him, say, in a nice warm climate with a desert island, but he'd, ha- he'd have to actually sort of do something to catch his fish. But what would he do even if you, even if you gave him all the food? It, without his iPhone, what is he going to do? If he had his iPhone, he could learn to fish. I mean, they do have lots of uh, information about that, but it, <laughs> I find myself, honestly, when I'm, when I'm on the internet, and I, you know, it might be one of the first things I reach for in the morning. Get up, I'll grab my phone, uh, look at the weather. Do you sleep uh, with the phone under your pillow? <laughs> A lot of people no. do. I, I, no, I don't. It's right next to, it's charging right next yeah. to me. Like yeah. a lot of us. Yeah. We've got put this, it, this put phone. It, put, put it in the next room. It, well, that's that might my be first, that's not my a bad first idea. Advice. But I mean, I find myself uh, looking at some YouTube videos that's things that interest me, technology, yeah. you know, my music. I understand the the addiction. As a yeah. matter of fact, I think Apple is now working on some sort of uh, way that people can become less addicted to the phone, less addicted to technology. I, that seems counterproductive for Apple, but uh, I think you, they're trying to sort you, of help. If you'll believe that, I have, I have some Florida real estate I'd like <laughs> right. to interest you in. <laughs> so you suggest that technology is neither good or bad, but in this wicked time we live, it has become an instrument for darkness. We have a culture of dependency. And, and, and this culture of dependency is very, it's strongest among the youngest. And it's not because they're young. It's because they have been raised with more and more uh, technology and, and, and much greater dependency. The, the people who grew up 
say, around 1900, mm -hmm. grew up knowing how to plant a garden, knowing how to hunt, how yes. to fish, how to use, how to fight with their fists, how to behave under, under a variety of circumstances. Sure. These people were growing up at the age of 18. Right. Today, I have friends my age, which is as old as the hills, who are still not grown up. Oh. I remember way back, uh, say about 30 years ago, I'd visit old friends from college. Mm -hmm. And by then, you know, they're in their 40s and they're getting together and they're putting on old Jimi Hendrix records and smoking dope. I am not a puritanical moralist, on the contrary. But really, at the age of 45, there's nothing better you can do with your life. And It uh, seems like uh, with that idea that people are hungering for their youth, they're hungering for a simpler time, they're hungering for uh, an, an ease of life instead of having to face uh, the darkness around you, the, the difficulty, and maybe it's not even darkness, maybe it's just the, all the stuff that goes with life that's, that's a pain in the neck, the bills, the house. The it used to be you'd, you'd have a few bills, you have the electric bill, uh, the, and sure. you'd go at all and pay them at the office of right. the, where they had it. And life has become so complicated because we're, our lives are controlled by so many services. But back to people listening to Hendrix, it seemed clear to me in the late 1960s yes. as a kid, it seemed that people were becoming hippies or pseudo hippies or yes. you know, moving into communes, hitchhiking across the country, right, okay. loving, loving Easy Rider, that whole thing. The, the whole folk movement of pretending you're living in the Middle Ages, singing English ballads, you know, right. this movement. Although it was corrupted very quickly and it was and it became a destructive move because it was just a way of dropping out of human responsibility right. and evading the process of growing Off the up. Grid living. Yeah. But on the other hand, the people who inspired this movement and some of the leaders, whether they were communists like Pete Seeger or not, one of the things they knew is that this highly technological, highly capitalistic society that was evolving, in which it was government and corporations at the expense of normal human life, and that to drop out and that, what do the rich do? I have very rich friends. They bought a place without electricity down in Chile. Edward O. Wilson says, what do, what do people do when they get rich? They recreate the life of primitive man in, in living in the African savannas, where you have rolling fields and the sight of water, because this is how primitive man, because he could see a long way, he could find game and then go hunt it. Sounds we, like the hunger for simplicity, once again. That is a decent impulse. People who don't go to Disney World or Vegas, what do they do on, what does they do on vacations? They go to the beach and do nothing. They go and get a cabin in Canada or northern Wisconsin or Maine. They go and live as they imagine their grandparents or great-grandparents lived. Now, this is getting hard harder and harder because those cabins are getting more and more, you know, they've all got big screen TV and they've all got free <laughs> Wi-Fi the and they've got all these other things. Yeah. But the impulse, the desire to escape from a, uh, this capitalist technological world, this is this was a wholesome impulse, just as uh, when Joan Baez would, would sing these, these lovely English ballads, this was not a bad development. The fact that she was a rotten communist didn't, didn't mean that the impulse impulse to do these things was wrong. It was a medieval impulse. It was a desire to escape from everything modern. Well, <laughs> I'm going to dovetail another question into that because you talked about the youth and maybe many people looking for the, a simple way of life or a back to their youth. You, you mentioned listening to Jimi Hendrix and such. If you could give yourself a piece of advice at 18 or 20, 
what would you have said to yourself? <laughs> Don't worry, this is all going to be over someday. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> George Bernard Shaw's famous quip, you know, youth is wasted on the young is truer today than it's ever been. And one of the things where youth wastes its time is thinking about itself. The, the brooding adolescent thinking about what do people think about me? Oh. Do people like me? Am I going to succeed? What am I going to do with life? And uh, the less of that that you do, the, the the better off you are. And really buckling down and learning honest skills, you're never going to have the time or the ability to learn uh, so rapidly, so efficiently, so effectively uh, when you are uh, under, say, 25, uh, especially under 21. So uh, I was lucky because I went to college thinking I was going to be a chemistry major and become a scientist because that's all that had, that had been mostly my interest since my earliest memory. Okay. First astronomy, then chemistry. But I found I'd already begun to find people in science very boring. And I said, you know, gee, if this is what it does to them, I don't want to be one of them. <laughs> and I was finding it, you know, they just wanted technical answers and things to things. They were, you know, it, it didn't interest me at all. And so I was very fond of literature, but I couldn't stand going to an English class and listening to people talk about uh, about literature. And mm -hmm. the, the his, history classes, again, talk, 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 talk. So I ended up taking nothing but foreign language classes most of the time. My senior year in college, I had three semesters of Greek, two semesters of Latin, three semesters of French, and two semesters of German. Now, why? Because it's too hard to do it on your own. You should have at least one ancient language or one modern language under your belt by the time you're 21, because mm. you're never going to have that chance again. But there are other, there are other things, you know. There are so many skills, whether it's carpentry or fishing or cooking, instead of sitting around listening to records and smoking dope or whatever it is people do, mm -hmm. there are things to be learned at that age which will give you pleasure and which will open up new horizons the rest of your life. Now, I didn't want to hear that. You know, I didn't. I didn't <laughs> my, my father would say, get up off that sofa and go out and do X, Y, or Z. I didn't want to hear that. On the other hand, uh, what your parents know how to make life unpleasant for you, and so you have to get out of the house. Forgetting all these things right. that you're supposed to worry about, and all these institutions that are supposed just don't join the YMCA, don't join the Boy Scouts, don't join the Girl Scouts, don't join political movement, don't start marching for anything. When people say, oh, well, we're going to the, the March for Life in Washington— you're 16 years old. What are you doing going to? You don't know anything about politics or anything else. <laughs> it's up to you to sit and listen and to learn, mm -hmm. not, to, not to take part in demonstrations. But I have many friends. Oh, I'm so happy. My, my daughter, a 17-year-old daughter, is going to, is going to this, this uh, uh, Right to Life march. Well, at least they got off the couch. <laughs> they got off the couch, but by the way, if you one of the things that life right to life uh, rallies do is they generate a lot of life because the the the, the sexual activity of these kids there's like monkeys in a zoo. Oh boy! No, and anybody will tell you this who who has gone to these things. Because, what, what, you're going to put oversex teenagers together with, with, you know, one adult for every thousand teenagers? What a brilliant idea. 
Would you have gone to those uh, marches when you were 18? Absolutely. <laughs> I've heard it said that uh, your parents ruined the first part of your life and your kids ruined the second part. Yeah. <laughs> kind of the thing we got yeah, going. Well, we are not even talking about. It's it. payback time. You, get, <laughs> you reap what you sow. <laughs> well, this has been uh, another interesting conversation. We have a couple of more questions to go. Whether we will continue or not uh, is uh, in the hand of fortune. But uh, it has been interesting once again, and uh, we will probably complete these conversations in another show coming up very soon. Look forward to it. <laughs>